I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, in our first podcast of the new year, we're tackling a timeless debate among constitutional law scholars and citizens. When is it appropriate for courts to strike down laws passed by Democratic legislatures? In a front page story this week, the New York Times reported that Republicans are turning to the court to block actions taken by President Obama on a range of issues, including health care, climate change, and immigration. And in another story published this week, Politico reported that Democrats also are turning to the courts, this time to block Republican gerrymandering, and Democrats have also been successful in overturning same-sex marriage bans across the country, most recently in Florida. Are these examples of illegitimate judicial activism in which court, the courts are overstepping uh, their proper bounds, or are they appropriate examples of judicial engagement, protecting liberty and fulfilling the constitutional roles of the courts as the founders intended. Joining me to debate this fascinating topic are two outstanding scholars and advocates and friends of the National Constitution Center. Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, where he litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases. He is director of the Institute's Center for Judicial Engagement and has written a book about judicial engagement titled Terms of Engagement, how our court should enforce the Constitution's promise of limited government. Michael Gerhardt is the Samuel Ash Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law and Director of the UNC Center on Law and Government. He's written five books, including the superb Forgotten Presidents, Their Untold Constitutional Legacy, which he outlined in a wonderful program last October here at the National Constitution Center, which you can find online if you haven't already seen it. Uh, all right, gentlemen, this is one of my favorite topics in constitutional law, and I'm uh, delighted that you've both joined us to discuss it. Let's jump right in. Clark, you're quoted in the New York Times story I mentioned moments ago. You argued that the term judicial activism has become pejorative, and you prefer the term judicial engagement. Explain for our listeners what the term means, what's the difference between judicial activism and judicial engagement, and how it fits into the broader debate between the appropriate role of the courts. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about this interesting and timely subject. Um, you know, judicial activism has really become just a, I think it really is a pejorative. It's a term that people throw around to denigrate court decisions they disagree with. And oftentimes it doesn't have any more substance than that. Uh, and and the, one of the reasons that's such a problem is because when a person dismisses uh, a court decision as judicial activism, uh, they are kind of excusing themselves from explaining what it is about that court decision that they disagree with. In order to do that, of course, you have to articulate some theory of the Constitution. You have to explain why the court not only got a decision wrong, which, of course, judges are human, they will get decisions wrong from time to time, but when someone says judicial activism, there's uh, usually a, a kind of an implication that it wasn't just wrong, but the decision was so wrong that it could only have been a result of bad faith. And making that kind of an argument uh, is a much uh, more difficult thing to, than to simply say that the court got it wrong. So judicial activism, I think, is a very unhelpful term. It's used by people to try to dismiss judicial decisions they disagree with, but without articulating a coherent theory of the Constitution. By contrast, judicial engagement is a very precise empirical term, and the, the substance of it is this. 
There is no class of constitutional cases in which courts should abandon their truth-seeking role, in which they should accept as true factual assertions from the government for which it has no evidence, or, and in which judges should try to sort of lean in favor of the government or put a thumb on the scale in favor of government, bend over backwards to find ways to say yes to government. That's judicial engagement. The opposite of judicial engagement is judicial abdication, uh, which is, as I, as I suggested a moment ago, judicial abdication would be where judges accept uh, uh, facts for which there's no proof, uh, lean in favor of the government, and uh, avowedly abandon the truth-seeking role that they normally embrace. Uh, and unfortunately, I would say most of constitutional law today involves uh, some facet of judicial abdication. There are very few truly engaged uh, uh, judicial uh, decisions in the constitutional area. Great. Thanks so much for that, Clark. Uh, Michael, Clark has helpfully focused our debate by ending the, the squabble over semantics. Uh, he prefers the descriptive term judicial engagement. He unapologetically says that means judges should generally not defer to legislatures and should evaluate laws skeptically. Uh, what is your response first to his claim that that's what judges uh, should do, that it's appropriate for judges to take an engaged role in, in second-guessing the decision of democratic legislatures? Uh, do you agree with his uh, contention that few judges today are engaged? and give us a historical sense of whether you think that this notion of judicial engagement uh, uh, has been good or bad for the country. Well, I'll try and do all that, Jeff, in about one minute. No, uh, <laughs> but I, I will, um, no, and I have to try and talk about that and get the ball rolling. I, I, I think to, to begin with, um, I understand, I think I understand Clark's use of the word judicial engagement, um, and that is sometimes what courts do, but I, I'm not so sure I'm convinced it's, it, uh, it's what courts generally do, and maybe most importantly, um, one thing about judicial restraint and judicial engagement, are these are not words that courts use to describe themselves. What happens is scholars or people who sort of look at the courts from outside look at them and say, this is, what I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to try and describe what the court has done. But we need to be careful when we describe what the court does because it may be infused by values. It may be driven by particular values or perspectives that people have about how courts should behave. So for example, I don't know that courts have a truth-seeking function generally. I think courts decide cases or controversies. They're limited by all sorts of things like standing and other uh, restrictions on what kinds of cases they may decide and when they may decide them, what posture they have to be in. That's an important part of defining the court's power. And I think uh, the critical thing is to not lose sight of the fact that we're talking about courts which are uh, involved in the legal system and they're restrained and defined in all sorts of ways, much of which was, is by Congress through laws governing federal jurisdiction. Um, Clark, so Michael has questioned your account of what courts actually do. I want to ask the obvious question. For at least a generation, Republicans accuse Democrats of being judicial activists, and if we want to use the neutral term, basically of using the courts to fight battles that they couldn't win in the political arena. And now the tables have turned, and it's Democrats who are accusing Republicans of doing that. And this New York Times story reports that uh, there are plans to challenge uh, President Obama on health care and immigration and the environment. Um, are Democrats correct to say that this is a form of hypocrisy and uh, Republicans are abandoning their former demand for a limited role for the courts? Well, I think there's something to it, but I don't, I don't think it's fair to say they're correct across the board. It is certainly the case that Republicans have generally been critical of, of, of you know, I would say courts that are relatively zealous in limiting the government and su supposedly inventing rights that are not 
explicitly set forth in the text of the Constitution. The problem, I think, main problem here is that this is an incomplete critique because, of course, many of the same things are true of Democrats themselves. They want courts to be restrained when it comes to reviewing policies that they like. So, for example, um, most liberals don't want the courts being zealous in their review of gun control laws, uh, laws that limit campaign contributions, so forth, laws that empower the federal government. Um, and so you'll see this on both sides. When it's a policy that liberals generally like, they generally want the courts to stay hands-off. And when it's a policy they don't like, they tend to be pretty enthusiastic about courts uh, uh, you know, reviewing those laws and perhaps striking them down. So I think it's uh, a fair criticism, but I think it's an incomplete criticism because it applies maybe not equally, but it certainly applies in many cases uh, to, to liberals themselves. So I think, there's, I think we need to move beyond this because it's a very blunt tool of, critic, of criticism to say, well, you, know, you guys don't believe in judicial reviews, so you're being hypocritical. Well, that's not true. Republicans have never disavowed, or I should say most Republicans have never completely disavowed judicial review. There's just disagreement about when it's appropriate and when it's not. So, so Michael Clark has really gotten us to the nub of the matter. He says, yes, Democrats are right. Republicans have been inconsistent in some cases about uh, their allegiance to judicial deference across the board, but Democrats are just as bad. Basically, he says both sides want the courts to strike down laws they don't like and to uphold laws they like. Is he correct? Yes, in a word. Um, I, I, I think that uh, you know, it's not surprising that political leaders will be political and that they will take positions that um, are largely driven by their po uh, political considerations. And so it is not surprising throughout history, uh, if we look at how politicians uh, look at the Supreme Court, they tend to like the decisions they like and support them and find a rationale to support them. And there's something they don't like, they try and figure out uh, reasons why they don't like it and and then uh, characterize it accordingly. So one thing we've got to be careful about is um, whose perspective are we talking about? If we're talking about uh, people in Congress, they look at the court oftentimes from their political posture and their perspectives are political. And we should be very careful in not accepting their views as uh, being authoritative in the sense that it's really about some kind of neutral constitutional law. There's, they are players in a system, and they are obviously trying to play the system. And they're using arguments they think will curry political favor, uh, primarily outside the court. Um, if, as a constitutional scholar, I did that, I think I should be fired primarily. Um, I, it's not my job to be partisan. I'm trying to look things to the extent it's possible in some even-handed, more or at least uh, from a broader perspective. And I think that. Um, so we, whether it's newspapers or opinion pieces or anything else that are talking about the Supreme Court, we should be aware that those are made in, uh, outside of the court and they're made for political reasons. And I think uh, Clark is right that we shouldn't necessarily look to political leaders for, uh, let's say, neutral or um, impartial assessments of what's going on. Um, so just to prevent this from descending into a love fest, Clark, both of you are agreed that political leaders are hypocritical in their description of the role of the courts. But what about judges? Uh, are there some uh, conservative judges, uh, people like Justice Anton and uh, Scalia uh, comes to mind, who have long defended a limited role for the courts and said that courts should be hesitant to strike down laws, who, according to their critics, are now embracing judicial engagement when it comes to striking down laws they don't like, such as health care, immigration, and so forth. Is it appropriate to criticize judges for inconsistency in their devotion to judicial restraint? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that's perfectly fair. Uh, and everybody, of course, is going to differ on which justices they think are, are you know, uh, should be the target of that criticism. Let me suggest this. I think one way out of this uh, seeming conundrum that perhaps this is all subjective and, you know, one side throws rocks at the other and, and, and there's no way out of the sort of morass that it all comes down to just your policy preferences. One way out of that conundrum is to focus on the process by which judges decide constitutional cases. And that takes us back to the the term judicial engagement. Judicial engagement is not uh, really about judicial decisions in terms of their results. It's the process of how judges decide constitutional cases. And, and let me give you an example. Uh, as some of your listeners will know, there's something called the rational basis test, which is the default setting in constitutional cases. And it's important to understand how radically different the, the analysis is in a rational basis case than in other cases. So for example, let's uh, take one of a, an Institute for Justice case. There are a couple of states that, that pre prevent anybody who is not a state licensed funeral director from selling caskets. If you're challenging the sales ban on caskets, you're going to get rational basis review. And in that setting, the judge is not going to try to determine what the, the court is, or what the government is really trying to achieve with that law. The court is going to accept as true factual assertions for which the government offers no evidence. And the judge is going to be charged with helping the government win that case by inventing hypothetical justifications for the government's actions. Now, if that were an advertising restriction, so imagine a state limits the advertising of caskets instead of their sale, everything changes because rational rational basis goes out the window. You have something called the central Hudson test. Uh, it's an intermediate scrutiny test for commercial speech. And suddenly the judge is going to insist that the government give an honest account of its actions to explain what it is really trying to achieve with the regulation, support its assertions with evidence as opposed to speculation or conjecture, and the judge will remain strictly neutral throughout that proceeding. That is a radically different way of approaching cases than under rational basis review, and that's focusing on process. It is a process that reflects integrity and a genuine attempt to get the Constitution right, and that's a contrast with the default setting, which again is rational basis review, in which the courts abandon the truth-seeking function, accept factual assertions for which the government has no evidence, and actually play, uh, in effect, play for the government by trying to help them win cases. So I think that helps us get out of the, 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 the sort of the, the argument that there's this in, innate subjectivity to how judges decide constitutional cases if we focus on the process and see what they're really doing. Um. Michael Clark has just argued that judicial engagement need not be subjective, but can be principled if you focus on process. Yet you have argued that over the course of history, uh, judicial engagement or, or activism uh, has often, uh, in the process of short-circuiting democratic debates, uh, imposed contested visions on an unwilling society and led to backlashes that have often harmed the courts. Can you make the case against judicial engagement and describe why you think that broadly it has served America poorly over time? Well, I, I, I think the argument um, is basically that um, it, it, it may or may not be um, an accurate description of what the court does. I don't think it is a t uh, an accurate description of what the do court does over time um, because I think the court is not driven by labels. Uh, the court isn't driven by sort of um, a collective sort of normative or value-laden view of what it ought to be doing. You've got nine justices who may be differing on what they, they perceive their jobs to be and who are trying to focus on the case in front of them. So mostly over American history, you see the court and justices trying to decide first and foremost the case or controversy that's before them. Um, and in doing that, I think it's not going to ultimately be very helpful 
for them uh, for for there to be a general label or conception about this is what your function ought to be. No, instead what's going to happen is each individual justice will try and develop his or her own conception in light of or in the context of the case before him or her. Um, so one thing to consider is um, less is, is to move away from generalities about what the court should do and, and consider more specifically what it is the court has been doing or is doing in the particular case before us. And I think historically, um, and that will help us, I think, understand historically better what the court has done. I think the court has been um, has dominated by different kinds of people with different perspectives at different times. And so the current court, for example, with the composition that it's got, um, it's, it's hard to capture specifically what it is that's driving them. Instead, I think you've got to look at the individual justices and figure out, okay, where, where is each coming from and how does that influence him or her in the particular cases before them? And I think when we get that specific, we can much better understand what the court's doing in a particular case. Great. Well, let's get down to specifics. I, I don't know that we've got a head count among justices, but let's talk about the three major challenges on the horizon to the centerpieces of President Obama's uh, domestic agenda. As the New York Times report, there are lawsuits planned on issues ranging from the Affordable Care Act to climate change to immigration. Um, let's begin with health care. We've had separate podcasts on the fascinating forthcoming challenges to the uh, question of whether or not federally created health exchanges should receive tax subsidies. We, we don't need to get uh, terribly into the weeds, but Clark, I'd like you broadly to describe what the constitutional or statutory claims are in that case and why you think it would be appropriate for the Supreme Court, which has uh, earlier upheld uh, the Affordable Care Act's mandate, to strike down these federally created exchanges. Sure. Well, as everybody knows, the initial challenge to Obamacare was a constitutional challenge in which the argument was that the federal government lacks the constitutional authority uh, to mandate uh, the, that, that citizens purchase government-approved uh, health insurance. The Supreme Court rejected that challenge and held that it was a valid exercise of the federal government's tax power under the Constitution. There were then a, a kind of a flurry of follow-up cases involving both constitutional and statutory issues. And it happens that the case that, that first got up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is one involving a statutory issue. And the question in the case is whether the Affordable Care Act authorizes the federal government to provide subsidies to citizens who live in states that decline to set up uh, a state-operated health care exchange. Um, I, I think everybody agrees that it came as a, somewhat, something of a surprise to Congress that um, most states decided not to operate their own exchanges. There were significant incentives in the law for states to do that. But there was also a provision in the law that if states declined to set up a state-operated health care exchange that the uh, uh, Department of Health and Human Services would step in and operate um, a federally operated health care exchange. Now, the text of the statute does not explicitly provide for subsidies to citizens living in states where, the, where that mechanism was used, where the federal government stepped in to operate the exchange. And nevertheless, uh, the IRS has been uh, granting uh, subsidies to people living in those states, but without any explicit textual, uh, I should say, statutory authorization. And the question basically comes down to whether that is a legitimate exercise of regulatory discretion on the IRS's part uh, to sort of fill in a possible gap in the law, or whether, as the challengers to that law argue, the supposed gap in the law was quite deliberate, and in fact, Congress did not intend for citizens who live in states that do not operate their own exchanges to receive subsidies. That's the question that, that the Supreme Court has accepted cert on and will be argued in March. Uh, 
Michael, one of our uh, tenets of the National Constitution Center is that there are good arguments on all sides of, of most Supreme Court cases, and it's worth treating them respectfully. What's your sense of the counter arguments to the claim that these federally created exchanges deserve tax subsidies? And more broadly, I'd like your sense about what, uh, whether it would be a good idea for the uh, Supreme Court you know, as, a, as a legal matter, having earlier upheld uh, the core of the Health Care Act to uh, strike down such a crucial part of it now. Um, well, let me try and answer that in two different ways. I mean, the first is, um, maybe I'll try and deal with the second question first, which is a, um, the more general matter, more general issue. And that takes us back to what the court's role may be and the extent to which we want courts or um, legislatures to decide these basic questions. Um, I think that's been a, a concern that um, we hear a lot of, uh, from people outside the court, uh, which is, and this is a classic concern. It takes, it's, all, it's as old as the United States, which is, do we want courts deciding this or do we want legislatures deciding this? Theorists have debated that in all sorts of ways, and now we're seeing that debate again. Uh, not to lose sight of our concept, which was a defining one for our discussion today, judicial restraint. It used to be the case, um, though it doesn't still have to be the case, that um, uh, there was a view that perhaps judicial restraint or deference to Congress was appropriate in different areas, partly because we wanted them, partly because they were accountable for what would happen. And courts are not politically accountable for these things. So one argument might be, more general argument might be, the Congress, the court ought to be generally um, uh, disposed to stay away from these kinds of issues to let it work itself out in the political process. A counter argument against this law and in this context might well be that, well, we now have to engage in statutory construction. And that's, a very, that's what courts do all the time. And that's part of their business, uh, interpreting statutes. That gets very complex very fast, so I won't go down that road too far. But, um, but there, one question uh, listeners might consider is, what's the appropriate way to read a statute when it doesn't clearly indicate what should be done in this context? Do we read the absence of clear language as a prohibition? Or do we read ambiguities in the statute a certain way? Uh, how do we read the gaps and ambiguities of the statute? Those are very difficult questions, but it's not unreasonable to read them as disallowing what's happening right now, and preferring a, a more clear directive from Congress. Thanks so much for that. Let's turn uh, now to the second major uh, area of challenge. The New York Times reports that on climate change, state attorneys general and groups in the coal industry are asking federal courts to stop the president's plan to regulate power plants. Um, Clark, can you give us a broad sense of what the legal arguments involved in those challenges are? Yeah, I mean, basically what's happened here is that Congress has enacted a number of very broadly worded laws uh, pertaining to the environment that leave administrative agencies, including particularly the Environmental Protection Agency, with tremendous discretion to sort of fill in those blanks to determine, you know, at what point is water too dirty? At what point is a factory actually polluting to the point where uh, the federal government can step in and require it to, to either, you know, use filters or somehow reduce the amount of particulates that it's putting in the atmosphere? And the big argument I think here is um, how legitimate is it for an agency to be filling in gaps of that size and how much, how specific should Congress have to be in terms of setting uh, policies and specifically articulating, for example, the amount of pollution that factories can emit uh, before they run afoul of federal law. And it's a complex and interesting area, but it goes to a fundamental point, which is the uh, basically what's called the delegation doctrine, this idea that at a certain point, one can argue uh, that Congress is 
giving unconstitutional authority to administrative agencies to make rather than execute policy. And that, that's a problem. That is something that framers were concerned about. And the Constitution does specifically uh, provide that the legislature and the legislature alone has the authority to, to make policy in this country. Uh, and the question basically becomes, I think it's a perfectly valid question to present to the courts, have we gotten to the point where these uh, administrative agencies are not simply executing congressionally declared policy, but are in fact making policy in violation of the delegation doctrine? Michael, your response, the challenges to the delegation doctrine have a rich history during the New Deal. Uh, parts of the New Deal were challenged as uh, exceeding the president's power to delegate authority to administrative agencies, provoking a backlash. Um, might we see a similar backlash to these lawsuits today? Um, well, I, I, I risk going out on a limb here, but I, I, uh, um, so, but I will nonetheless. <laughs> Um, I, I think one thing that, of course, is part of our discussion and is part of our history is the extent to which people want to use courts to um, continue waging battles they lost in the legislature. And, and that happens all the time, and it's not unique to one side or another. And that's a concern. Uh, the concern is that the extent to which the, uh, some of these judicial battles are extensions of political battles that were lost, and now we're just going to continue to wage them in the courts. So the question really becomes, to what extent do we take the non-delegation doctrine seriously or not? The non-delegation doctrine uh, actually is very simple. And as we all know, there's been a total of one law that's been struck down under it in American history. Um, it basically says, as long as Congress gives an intelligible principle for agencies to follow, um, then we essentially uh, defer, that is to say, we, the courts, defer to that delegation, again, as long as it's ma uh, made pursuant to, or as long as there's some intelligible principle guiding it. Well, generally speaking, Supreme Court has said there's been intelligible principles all over the place guiding delegations. Now, can we ask politically, has Congress delegated too much? We might answer that question, yes, but that doesn't mean we should strike down the delegations. Maybe we should just change Congress. Um, so the question for me is whether or not the Supreme Court is going to continue to follow the non-delegation doctrine as it's been understood, which is a very deferential doctrine to Congress, or are we going to change that doctrine and begin to um, second-guess Congress much more? Uh, great. And, uh, and the final big issue is immigration, where, again, according to the Times, uh, conservative lawmakers and state officials are asking federal judges to overturn the president's plan to prevent millions of deportations. Clark, tell us about the legal arguments involved in those cases. Well, there's some irony to the, um, the immigration issue because, of course, uh, a, a very reasonable argument can be made that the president uh, is essentially uh, has enacted a policy or has adopted a policy in this area that he was unsuccessful in getting in the legislature. It sort of picks up on something that Michael said a moment ago. So it's not just that it's possible to use the courts to continue battles that you've lost in the legislature. The president can, can continue battles that he has lost in the legislature uh, through unilateral uh, exercises of executive authority. That is an argument that has been made against uh, President Obama's immigration policy and particularly his decision to defer the deportation of people who are in this country uh, illegally. That is a, obviously an extremely controversial issue and it's even controversial at the level of who should be making that decision. Uh, most conservatives argue that that is a fundamentally legislative decision. It is one that the, the legislature has made in a way that the president disagrees with, but he nevertheless has a constitutional obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, including 
ones he personally disagrees with. Uh, and the, the counter-argument, as I understand it, is basically twofold, and that is that, uh, first, the president has discretion to choose which laws to enforce and which laws to not enforce. I certainly agree with that as a libertarian and as somebody who can count. There's, there's more than four or 5,000 federal criminal laws, and if he chooses not to enforce some of them, that's just a matter of you know, resource allocation. But the second argument is that the very statutes uh, involved here, these immigration statutes, uh, themselves contain significant grants of, of authority, or I should say of discretion to the executive branch, and that in a sense, he is really just you know, employing a statutory grant of authority that the legislature handed to him. Uh, I'm not an expert on immigration matters, so I really can't uh, opine as to which way uh, these cases will come out if they end up in court. The one thing I would argue, though, and this undercuts every or underlies everything that, that I've been, you know, all the points I've been making before about judicial engagement is, I would strongly object and hope that the courts would refuse to embrace any principle that is essentially a grant of open-ended authority to any branch of government. So what we should definitely want the courts to avoid is approaching this case in such a way that the president essentially has discretion to implement whatever policies in whatever areas he wants, because that is clearly intention, not just intention, but in open conflict with the constitutional obligation that the legislature make policy and the president execute that policy, whether he agrees with it or not. Michael Clark makes a, a, a strong point about the idea that uh, the president, as well as Congress, can turn to the courts to implement policies they're unable to uh, win legislatively the first time around. Uh, what's your response to the legal arguments raised in the challenges to President Obama's immigration actions and to Clark's observations more broadly on immigration? Well, I think the the, the main issue, I think, is largely as he's su uh, suggested it is, although I might recharacterize it. I mean, the main issue is whether or not he, he, what the president is doing here is something that falls within his discretion in enforcing a law or whether it somehow uh, constitutes or entails lawmaking. Um, presidents have lots of discretion when it comes to enforcing laws. They can under-enforce them, which is what we've just described. Sometimes they can over-enforce them. I do think one thing that um, you might think of as an advantage here is if a president is doing that, is that presidents largely remain politically accountable. Their checks and balances present when a president either acts or doesn't act, uh, checks and balances which are not available when courts take these issues away from the political branches. Uh, so I want to suggest maybe at the end um, a test we could use for determining at what point the arguments we're considering are either um, driven by certain values or maybe even partisan. And that is if we flip the players, if we say this isn't President Obama, but it's actually President, let's say, Jeb Bush or George W. Bush, um, or let's just say it's some Republican doing this, to what extent would then Republicans be willing to accept it or not? Um, we can flip it as well with, with Democrats. Say, um, so then if the Republicans doing this, do we think um, Democrats would then disagree or not? Um, so if then this may be a useful rule of thumb we could use in the future for just keeping ourselves honest when we are looking at different situations, asking, okay, do we think there's a principle here or not, or are we just siding with a branch or not, depending upon whether or not uh, it's uh, coming from the same political perspective we've got. Great. Well, gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, Michael has teed them up well. Clark, uh, what are your concluding thoughts about why it is appropriate for courts to be judicially engaged at this particular moment in history and why previous defenses of judicial restraint uh, should be abandoned? 
the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and every American is entitled to see that the Constitution is fully and conscientiously enforced. The uh, call for judicial engagement is a call for courts to reject the proposition that they should engage in a genuine truth-seeking function in some cases but not others, that they should require the government to support its policies with evidence in some cases but not others, that judges should remain strictly neutral in, in contests between the government and citizens in some cases but not others. In other words, it's not so much um, a, a policy, it's not so much a theory of the Constitution, it is an approach to judging that rejects the idea that judges should ever put their thumb on the scales in favor of one side or the other. In reality, however, in, in many if not most constitutional cases, judges avowedly put their thumb on the scales in favor of government. They allow the government to assert facts for which it has no evidence, um, and they, they abandon the truth-seeking function. I want to just pick up on one thing Michael said earlier, that you know, he said he doesn't know that the courts do have a truth-seeking function generally. I, I disagree with that. They absolutely have a truth-seeking function generally. I'll give you one example of a case that's working its way up to the Supreme Court involving that issue. A number of states have enacted regulations that put limits on the ability to operate abortion clinics. Putting aside your feelings on abortion, the Supreme Court has held that it is a constitutionally protected right, and it is either the case that those regulations are trying to protect the health of people going to those clinics, or it is the case that those regulations are primarily designed to shut those clinics down and discourage people from using them. That is a classic example of a situation where it matters tremendously whether the courts embrace or abandon their truth-seeking function. And the same applies to every other constitutional issue that comes before the Supreme Court. Judicial engagement says courts should never abandon their truth-seeking function. Thank you so much for that, Clark. Michael, your final thoughts on the case for judicial restraint over judicial engagement. Sure, and I'll just pick up where Clark left off. I think, you know, Clark's made some wonderful points and some very thoughtful ones, but let me suggest that um, in looking at what courts do, we've got to be, um, pay more attention to the context, and that's, I think, where we've got to put our focus. So just to take his example, um, I would suggest that the truth is that it may well be that these laws he just described are actually being undertaken to try to protect the health of women for the sake of closing those clinics down. So it's not a question of either or. It's a question of how, whether or not there's been a, uh, a pretext or uh, an effort made for the sake of more than one objective, and that's entirely possible. Life is complex, and sometimes it's uh, possible to discern a variety of different views. But what I want to suggest is the focus ought to be less on courts and more on the political branches. Um, I come, I've been in teaching long enough, I've been a scholar long enough, uh, where I've been on the losing side of a particular position for quite a long time, but I'm, happy, I'm very comfortable there, which is, um, ironically, the position of judicial restraint, which is to expect less from courts and more from political branches and then hold those political branches accountable for what they do. The more courts intervene, the less we depend on political branches, the less vitality they have, the less energy they have, the less respect we have for them. I want to suggest as a closing point that perhaps we ought to pay more attention to the constitutional decision-making of political branches and then hold them politically accountable for it when they get it right or we think it's right and hold them accountable when we think they get it wrong. That, I think, would be a great American tradition to follow. Wonderful. Well, I did not know whether it was possible to have a civil debate about the most contested topic in constitutional law, namely judicial engagement versus judicial restraint, but both of you have emphatically provided us with that. Clark Neely and Michael Gerhardt, thank you for an illuminating, uh, provocative, and uh, extremely useful uh, conversation. Uh, 
Ladies and gentlemen, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.